Great. Good morning. Happy New Year. Great to see you. Good to be together. Uh, welcome, particularly if you're a visitor here. Really, really great to have you here. Thanks for joining the family. Hope you have a good time this morning. And uh, one of the lowlights of my Christmas was doing a thousand-piece jigsaw that had one piece missing. Oh, so disappointing. So disappointing. Um, the, the highlight was we gave a puppy to my nephews for Christmas. I mean, it just doesn't get better than that, does it? Giving a puppy. Look at these. Oh, can you imagine? It was a complete surprise as well. It came in a kind of blank box with a sticker on the side that said a dog is for life, not just for Christmas. And they opened it up and there it was. So that was, that was one of our highlights. Um, and also I started reading this book. I'd like to recommend a book to you. Just wave at me uh, if you've read a book this last year. Just one book. Awesome. What were the rest of you doing? No, I'm joking. So, um, so here, is a, here is a brilliant, brilliant book. It's called Dirty Glory by Pete Gregg, who is the founder of the 24-7 prayer movement. And uh, I mean, I, I'm only like a quarter of the way through and it's already just completely rocking my world. The rest might be rubbish. I don't know. I doubt that it is. But um, I just want to recommend this to you because this will help and fuel uh, your love for prayer and more importantly your love for Jesus and it's just full of incredible stories about what the Lord does when his people take seriously the call to pray and uh, here's one story that I've read so far and it was a friend of Pete's who uh, was very very hard up at this particular time and she just began to pray and ask God for provision and uh, she, she was hardly making ends meet. She was hardly making a rent, but she, just, she was a real woman of prayer. She began to pray and pray and pray. And uh, there was this particular moment where she went away from home and a friend came and looked after her house. And as a friend was looking after her house, she went to the cleaning cupboard, opened it to find thousands of Swiss francs just floating around the cleaning cupboard. Now, she was kind of very confused about this because she knew that her friend was hard up and had been praying for God's provision, and yet suddenly, here were thousands of Swiss francs. And so she started to gather them together. She put them in a pile and left them in the cleaning cupboard, all kind of neatly bundled together. And she said to her friend, listen, when you get back, look in your cleaning cupboard. So, so her friend gets back to her own home. She opens the cleaning cupboard, and there, sitting neatly, are... 14,000 Swiss francs, which is half a year's wages. Half a year's, just sitting there. And she's, she's just completely confused because, you know, she's looked in that cleaning cupboard many times before. There was never any money in there before. So she goes to the police. She reports this 14,000 Swiss francs, you know, missing. There is no reported missing money anywhere. There's no reported burglaries. The police like, well, this, this is your money. You keep it. So she, she keeps this money. The story goes on. Three days later, she was telling a friend about this story, and this friend wanted to go and look at the cupboard where the money had appeared. And so they go to the cupboard, they open the cupboards, and sitting on top of the boiler is another 200-franc note. And she's just, like, blown away. She's like, Jesus, what is this? And so she goes up to her room, and she says, God, thank you so much. I dedicate this money to you. If any more money comes in, I'm just going to give everything away. So then the next day, they wake up, they go to the cleaning cupboard, there is another 200 franc note sitting in, their, in the boiler. Another 11 days later, they're in a youth meeting in her house, and during the, the kind of time of looking at the word, they hear this fluttering sound coming out of the cupboard. 
They go to the cupboard and there's another 13,600 Swiss francs just fluttering around in the cleaning cupboard. I was like, just phenomenal, phenomenal story. I tell you what, when you pray, Jesus hears you. He hears you, you know, and you know, actually it's very biblical. Jesus turned a fish into a cash machine in the Gospels. You know, why, why wouldn't he do it with a cleaning cupboard? <laughs> you know, he, he can provide any which way he decides. But I want to encourage you to get in, to, into some good books that will feed your soul. And this is certainly one of them. This will help you pray and love Jesus more. So uh, I might even read some more later on this morning. So why don't you grab a shoulder of someone you're sitting next to. I want us just to qu- pray quickly. Some of you want to go home now and check your cleaning cupboards. I know. So do that when you get back. If there's no money, then just use the hoover instead. (laughs) Jesus, we thank you so much for your power, your grace, your mercy, your love. Lord, we thank you that every single person in this room is loved and known by you, celebrated by you, created in your image and likeness. God, thank you that we, each of us, have dignity and purpose because you made us for your glory. And we just say, as we come to your word, Father, will you let it do us good? God, change us by your word. Put something in us that will help us run this year, make it run our race well. Lord, with our eyes fixed on Jesus. We just say, come Holy Spirit, rest upon us this morning, in Jesus' name, amen, amen. Just to say, at the end of this meeting, we're going to be uh, praying for our amazing friend, Liam Pickford. I don't know if if Liam is here yet. He's on his way. Just to say, if you know Liam and want to pray for him, we'd love to gather around him at the end. Uh, He is moving to London. Sadly for us, but great for them. And uh, he's really one of the heroes in this church. And we really want to send him with our love and uh, with our prayers. So we're going to be gathering down here at the end. So just encourage if you know Liam and want to pray and prophesy, please do that at the end of the meeting. Great. Well, if you've got a Bible, please turn to Hebrews and chapter 12. And we're going to be reading some uh, verses there together. And I want to talk to you this morning about running your race well. Running your race well. And Hebrews 12 is all about running your race. That's the theme of this particular passage. And it's a passage that's a very familiar uh, kind of imagery, really, in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul, who is one of the writers of a lot of the New Testament, said this in uh, one book, Corinthians. He says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run, therefore, in such a way so as you get the prize. And then right at the end of his life, Paul says this to his friend Timothy, I have fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I have kept the faith. This imagery of running your life race well appears again and again in Scripture. And Hebrews 12 is one of those moments. Now, I get mocked from my running career because it lasted for three days only. Um, I'm a very infrequent runner. Um, But maybe you started this year thinking about the year ahead and thinking, what are my goals and aims? What is it that I want to achieve this year? What is it that I want to get out of this year? How am I going to do life this year? And Hebrews 12 is one of those passages that helps give us a course of action so that we plot our life well. And as we come to chapter 12, 
What's happened just before in chapter 11 is the writer to the Hebrews has begun to recount stories of men and women who ran their race well in their time. Some of them hundreds of years before this passage was written. He talks about Abraham and Moses and Enoch and Rahab and Gideon and these great heroes of the faith who trusted God and lived for him in their lifetime. And he calls them the great cloud of witnesses. And that is where we're going to pick up in verse 1 of chapter 12. The writer says this, Therefore, whenever you find a therefore, you need to ask what it's there for. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. The writer here really identifies two keys to running your life race well. The first is you've got to identify what the obstacles to running well are. And secondly, you've got to find your focus, your reason for running, your motivation for running well. Identify your obstacles and find your focus. Let's look at the first of those. Identify your obstacles. He says this, let us throw off everything that hinders the sin that so easily entangles. And then in verse 3, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. There are three things, three big obstacles that can stop you running your race for Jesus well. Things that cause you to slow up, trip up, or give up. Slow up, trip up, or give up. And as we talk this morning, I want you to ask yourself, which one of these three obstacles might be most likely to trip me up this year? Because that's part of what it looks like to run our race well. So firstly, what causes us to slow up? The writer here says, throw off everything that hinders. Everything that hinders. And perhaps here he is thinking about an athlete who is maybe a bit overweight, You know, maybe some of us feel like that at the start of a new year. Too many roast potatoes, a little bit overweight. And that's the guy that the writer is thinking of. He's saying, listen, you need to to run well, throw off everything that hinders. Throw off the things that just weigh you down. The things that make you feel a bit cumbersome. Get rid of those things. And those things are not necessarily bad things. In my experience, often the things that hinder us can be good things that have become wrong priorities in our life. Good things that have become wrong priorities in our life. It's easy, isn't it, for good things to subtly become godlike things in our life that we feel like we can't live without. And I believe those are the sorts of things that the writer is thinking about hindering us. Distractions. Things that waste our time. (laughs) Things that cloud our focus from looking at the main thing. Those kind of things. And Here is a quote that I'd like to share with you that I hate and love probably in equal measure and I thought I'd share the pain. So here it is. John Piper says this. One of the great uses of Twitter and Facebook will be to prove at the last day that prayerlessness was not from a lack of time. Let me just read that again. I just felt that thudding in to some of our hearts. 
mine included. One of the great uses of Twitter and Facebook will be to prove at the last day that prayerlessness was not from a lack of time. If you don't feel strong desires for the manifestation of the glory of God, it is not because you've drunk deeply and are satisfied. It's because you've nibbled so long at the table of this world. Your soul is stuffed with small things and there is no room for the great. There is no room for the great. How many of us recognize that, that we can so often be stuffing ourselves with the small things that we suddenly wake up one day and we think, why am I not passionate for the glory of God? And it's not because of sin necessarily. It's just because of good things that have become God-like things in our lives that we think, I just, I couldn't go a week without watching telly. You know, I couldn't go without my phone. I couldn't go out without this or without that. Well, how many of you know you just identified a potential hindrance in your life that has suddenly l- split your focus from the main event, the one that you were born to live for? You know, I love that quote and hate that quote. I hate it because it's true. I love it because it's true. <laughs> you know, so often these things, you know, I-, I love watching box sets on Netflix. How many of you love watching a good box set on Netflix? You're afraid to even own up now, I can see. You're like, no, I never watch television, no, no. <laughs> you know, how, how many of you just watched The Crown on Netflix? Let's try that one. Yeah, about two people. I don't believe you, you're all lying to me. Okay, I love that, you know, I, I, I love, you know, Sky Sports, my Sky Sports app. I mean, it's just the go-to app every day. Every, how many men, Sky Sports app? I mean, look around, there we go. Again, some of you are lying to me, I can just tell. <laughs> But these things, if we don't have them in right perspective and right priority, they can actually end up weighing us down and they can end up dimming our passion for the glory of God because they're small things that begin to replace the great things. And you know, I think this about our, the enemy of our souls. He's not particularly bothered how he stops you from running your race. I'm not sure he's even that bothered about sin. What he's bothered about is taking your eyes off Jesus and he'll... Do, he'll use even good things to do that. And that's the first thing that the writer identifies, things that hinder us. But secondly, he talks about things that trip us up. He says, throw off the sin that entangles. The sin that entangles. And again, perhaps he's in his mind's eye, he's thinking about an athlete in the Greek games. And he's thinking about someone who maybe was running with overly uh, kind of flowing robes or outfit, getting tripped in his legs as he was trying to run a race. And he says, listen, you need to get rid of that stuff. Get rid of the stuff that's going to trip you up on that racetrack. Just deal with it. Get rid of sin because sin ultimately entangles you and will do you in. And I think, you know, we're, we're all kind of aware of the, the big sins, you know, the obvious things, you know, violence and lust and greed and you know murder you know stay away from those things but so often it's the more subtle more socially acceptable sins that actually end up tripping us up the most it's complaining isn't it it's gossiping (laughs) it's thinking the worst of people it's the making judgments about other people's motives. It's the things that are socially much more acceptable and yet still can trip us up in our race if you don't deal with them. If you're not ruthless with that stuff, it can stop you running in the lane that God has got for you. 
You know, when I, the first day I came back to work in the new year, I woke up and instantly I felt God remind me of a slightly grumpy email I'd sent another staff member. I was the first thing I thought of when I woke up and I thought, Jesus, I'm so sorry for being grumpy. But yeah, sometimes it's that stuff, isn't it? That we just kind of tolerate in our life. wonder how many of us this year, the thing that is likely to trip you up is maybe just a subtle, socially acceptable sin that you've learned to tolerate and accommodate somewhere in your life that you just carefully just keep there. The writer says, listen, deal with this stuff. It stops you from running. And I always found it amazing how we can justify our own sin. <laughs> You've noticed that. When you do stuff in your heart of hearts, you know is wrong, but we still like to justify. <laughs> you know, speeding, how about that? How many, you know, how many love to just justify, just going a bit over the speed limit? Well, speed limits are for bad drivers. I'm a good driver. It doesn't apply to me, you know. It's for other people. You know, you've got, you got to drive according to the road conditions, and the road's very clear, so it's fine for me to go at 80. Why not? You know, it's, it's amazing, isn't it, how we can find anything really to justify something that we know is wrong. <laughs> and it's like that with other things, perhaps more insidious things. What about pornography? Many, particularly men, have justified the use of pornography in private because they think, well, this is not hurting anyone. I'm just doing it on my own. You know, I'm still paying my taxes, still looking after my family, still working a day job. You know, I'm a, I'm a nice guy. Everyone needs to let off steam every once in a while. I'm not hurting anyone. Firstly, that's a... I nearly swore then. Firstly, that's a load of rubbish. You actually cannot watch pornography without being involved in the systematic victimization of some of the most vulnerable women on this planet. I've had to rescue women who are about to go and put themselves into the pornography industry so that they could fund their own drug habit. So don't you watch pornography and tell me that you care for justice because that's not true. You cannot watch that stuff. You, you cannot watch that stuff in private and not somehow be funding and fueling the very industry that God says he hates. And yet we do, we justify our own behavior. And here's the thing. Ultimately, you may be able to carry on for a little while, but ultimately it will kill you on the inside. If you don't deal with that stuff, it will stop you running your race. It's a little bit like those athletes who, who kind of dope and take drugs and put steroids in their system. It gives them a short-term boost, a short-term gain, something that makes them feel good in the short term, but in the long run, it kills you on the inside. I mean, one of my, he used to be one of my favorite biographies, Lance Armstrong, the cyclist. You know, he won five Tour de France's after beating testicular cancer. And he was a hero. And he talked about how he hated drug cheats. And yet in the years after, it came out that he'd been doing drugs all the way through. That's what it's like when you accommodate sin in your life. It gives you a short-term boost, long-term loss. Got to deal with that stuff. It'll stop you running well. I wonder if there are sins this year that maybe you've been quietly justifying or accommodating. You just need to be ruthless. You know, Jesus said, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. Take action. And then thirdly, he says, we can just grow weary and lose heart. 
Sometimes we just feel like giving up just because we've got weary of running our race. Sometimes life is so incessant, the pressures are so great. Sometimes even doing things for Jesus, you know, actually we can get worn out. Anybody got worn out serving Jesus? I have. Sometimes we just feel weary and weariness is different than tiredness. If you're tired, you need to go to bed earlier. If you're weary, you've got to get reconnected with Jesus. You've got to start putting more spiritual calories in than you're expending. If you're starting to feel weary in the race, you need to take action and do something so that you don't stop running. Take action now. I remember a number of years ago, before I was here in this church, I was at a uh, New Year's conference at Centre Parks that Carol, my wife, was uh, helping to run. She was looking after some kind of uh, gap year students. They were doing some meetings and worship and teaching. And I was there just to look after my two small children. And to be honest, I was weary. I mean, I've been a, 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 in full-time uh, pastoral ministry for a number of years, and I was tired on the inside and on the outside. And I didn't quite realize how tired I was until one moment where Carol came to me and she said, oh, some of the guys who are running these meetings, they'd love you to come in and prophesy and pray and maybe do some teaching. And the thought I heard go through my head was this, I just can't be bothered. (laughs) And I shocked myself. (laughs) You know when you have your thought and you think, where did that come from? And it was one of those. It just, it woke me up and I thought, something is wrong with me. What, I've never thought this before. I've got to fix this. And what I realized is I've just become weary. That's why in scripture it says, don't become weary of doing good. Why does it say that? Because it's possible to become weary in doing good. <laughs> Through no fault of your own, sometimes just because you're running, running, running. Again, if that is an obstacle, identify it at the start of this year and decide to do something about it. Because it will trip you up if you don't. And the writer, as he goes on, he says, listen, this is the first part of running well. Identify your obstacles. But the second part of running well, and it's, to be honest, the much more glorious part, he says, you've got to find your focus. Find your right focus. If you're going to run your race well that God has marked out for you, find the right focus. And every time, whatever the issue is, the focus is the same, and his name is Jesus. <laughs> His name is Jesus. And he says, listen, getting back on track means getting track on, back on track and finding Jesus in your vision, in your songs, in your speech, in your thought life. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. Just like that compass always finds true north, let your true north swing back to Jesus because that's how you're going to run your race in the long haul. There are three things that he mentions. The first is we're to lift up Jesus. We're to worship him. He says fixing our eyes on Jesus. That word fixing literally means to to forsake every other person in your peripheral vision and to fix them on one person only. Fixed on Jesus. Fixed on him alone. And this is the great antidote to slowing down in your race, to those hindrances that drag us down, is to say, I am going to be single-minded in my pursuit of him. I'm going to have one person in my sights this year, and it's Jesus. I'm going to worship him. I'm going to lift him up. I'm going to make much of him. 
Again, I, I love what John Piper says about people who visit the Grand Canyon. He says, no one visits the Grand Canyon to increase their sense of self-esteem. <laughs> said, that's pathological. <laughs> Why do you go to the Grand Canyon? You go to the Grand Canyon to see something greater than yourself. <laughs> and unless you've got someone who is greater, holier, more worthy than yourself in your vision, you won't run the race that God's marked out for you. The key, go to the Grand Canyon, go to Jesus, worship, lift him up, remember who he is, what he's like. He's the, he's the, the turner of tables in the temple. He's the hater of hypocrisy. He's the lover of the poor. He's the one who said, blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. He said, blessed are you who mourn, for you shall be comforted. This is Jesus. Jesus who healed the lame, who opened blind eyes, who emptied tombs. Jesus who, who came to the most broken and spoke hope and life. Jesus who came to the adulteress and said, neither do I condemn you. Leave your life of sin. Jesus who hated the religious Pharisees and, and, and all that they stood for, who railed against it. Jesus who hung on a cross. Jesus who was raised again and now sits at the right hand of the Father. Lift him up. Put him in your gaze. Have him in your sights. I tell you what, at the root of every sin is a lack of passion and focus on Jesus. <laughs> That's right at the heart of it. Lift him up. John 17, 3 says this, this is eternal life, that they might know you and Jesus Christ, whom you sent. It's all about Jesus. Let me read you some Pete Gregg. This is what he says. He says, The point of prayer is not the power that it releases, but the person that it reveals. The vision is Jesus. Dangerously, obsessively, undeniably Jesus. I don't pray because I'm into prayer. I pray because I'm into Jesus. And so we talk. I don't believe in the power of prayer. I believe in the power of Jesus. And so I ask for his help a lot. The vision is Jesus. Everything else is secondary. Even the mission is less important than the man. Actually, I hate evangelism. And so do most of my friends. But I'm into Jesus. So therefore, I talk about him a fair bit. In the way that you do when you really like someone and you no longer care who knows it. The vision is Jesus. Not Christianity. Not prayer. Not mission, not justice, not worship leading, nor church planting or evangelism. Listen, if you love Jesus, you'll do all that stuff. You'll pray and worship and go to church and preach the gospel. But in doing these things, don't lose the why. Don't get lost in the crowd. And he says this, it might be healthier if we all just stop being Christians for a bit. A week, a month, or even a year. We're just too good at it. It's become habitual. We've been operating out of religious muscle memory for so long that we've got spiritual RSI. Urgent voices are calling us to abandon the familiar comforts of Christendom, to strike out into the unknown and rediscover Jesus, the Nazarene. Let him hack into our systems and take us back to the place of willing surrender in which we will simply do anything, go anywhere, say anything that he tells us, whenever, wherever, whatever it takes. We 
need a theophany, a rediscover of the terror of his proximity. We are over familiar with holy things. We speak in tongues and think it's, think it's no big deal. We experience healings. We talk to God and he talks back for crying out loud. That means we're either clinically insane, suffering from some kind of religious psychosis, or we're experiencing an actual living, conversational, interactive relationship with the creator of the whole cosmos. There is no middle ground. You're insane or you're a saint. You're insane or you're a saint. It's all about Jesus. Undeniably, unquestionably, radically about Jesus. Maybe some of you have learned how to be Christians for so long. It's in your muscle memory. But the pulse in here no longer beats for Jesus. I tell you, it's the absolute key to running well. It's to lift him up. Say, Jesus, this is eternal life. Knowing you. That's it. That's the, whole, that's the whole ball game right there. That's the whole deal. That's it. Jesus. And then secondly, he says, look up. He says, remember that Jesus is the author and the perfecter of our faith. In other words, your faith did not originate in your decision to follow Jesus. It originated in his decision to choose you. He is the author he began the story. He wrote your life into existence. That moment where you said yes to him and you started reaching towards him, you would have discovered his hand was already on the way down to you. Scripture says he chose us before the foundation of the world. Jesus said to his own disciples, you didn't choose me. I chose you. <laughs> I chose you and appointed you to bear fruit. You know, you guys didn't actually have much to do with it. I started this. It's all by grace. You got in by a complete freebie. That's what grace is. It's a divine freebie. How many of you like a freebie? Buy one, get one free. This is the ultimate freebie. The grace of God. God's riches at Christ's expense. The grace of God. That's what you've received. Jesus is the author and the perfecter. And again, this is one of the great antidotes to tripping up, particularly in sin, is that we remember, I am covered by the grace of God. The grace of God is enough for me. He covers my sin with his mercy. His blood can redeem anything in my life, any failure in my life. His blood is enough to cleanse me, redeem me, make me whole again because of the grace of God. So maybe if you are here and you are stuck in sin that you've been accommodating, here's the good news of the gospel. There is grace in Jesus Christ. There is grace in him. You didn't start this. You're not going to finish it. He started it. He'll finish it. It's all about him. His grace covers you every day. You start in grace. You carry on in grace. Eternity will be all about grace. I had this revelation recently about the story of the prodigal son. Those of you that know that story will know the story well, that there's this wayward son who demands his inheritance early from his father. He runs away from home. He squanders wealth. He ends up living amongst the pigs. And eventually it says he came to his senses and he says to himself, even my servants are in a better state than I am. You know, I'm here eating the, the food of pigs. I'm going to go home and say to my father, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Please forgive me, I've blown it. And you know the story that as the prodigal son is walking home, it says while he was a long way off, his father saw him. 
and he hitched up his skirt and he began running through the town to greet his son before anybody else could stone him. And it says, when the father found his son, he threw his arms around him and he kissed his son. And he experienced the kisses of a good God, the grace of a father. And my revelation recently was this. I felt God say to me, Phil, the father kissed that prodigal son on that first moment of meeting. But he said to me, do you know what? I bet he kissed him every single day after that. <laughs> I just had a revelation of the grace of God. The kisses of a good God, his father. The grace of God, he is the author. John Newton, who wrote that hymn that we still sing today, Amazing Grace. He, he wrote that story because he had an encounter with Amazing Grace. He was a, a former slave ship owner. He used to work on the slave ships, slaving uh, into the West Indies, into Guinea. And he had this dramatic conversion and began to repent of his former sins. And he wrote that beautiful song, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sounds that saved a wretch like me. And that quote in the film, Amazing Grace from John Newton, he says this. He says, although my memory is fading, I remember two things very clearly. I was a great sinner and Christ is a great saviour. Christ is a great saviour. Jesus is a great saviour. He is a great saviour. I tell you what, you want to live a fruitful life this year and the rest of your life. Remember this, Christ is a great saviour. He saves you. He saves me every day. Every day. His grace is amazing every day. And the moment that you start believing that you deserve the grace of God is the moment where it ceases to be amazing and you struggle to sing that song. Every time we sing that song, we should think, I did not deserve mercy. And yet I've received kisses from a good God. And that is the gospel. We're going to land there because I want to pray before we go and pick up our kids. So just where you're seated, why don't you close your eyes and let's take a moment to respond to Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Father, I thank you that each one of us in this room has a race to run. You've marked it out for each one of us. Thank you that our lives have purpose, they have meaning, they have destiny. Lord, some of us, it's loving our neighborhoods or our workplaces, our family. Others, we're called to other nations, continents, people groups, tribes. Thank you each one of us has a unique fit in your purposes. And Father, I want to pray that you would help us to identify any obstacles and to refind our focus this year so that we can run with all our hearts. We just say, come Holy Spirit. Come Holy Spirit.